This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Good morning. Well, uh, this week I was thinking about, as I prepared for this sermon, about bad days. Yeah, we've all had them, right? And I hope yours wasn't really all that recent. But as I thought about bad days, I'm going to give you an, uh, uh, just a window into how this works when I start to prepare a sermon. The thing I could not get out of my mind was an old commercial during football season. And so I'm going to play you this commercial for no other reason than I have to get it out of my mind or I can't continue with this sermon. So play the, play the commercial. <clears throat> It was about fantasy football teams that were not so good. Okay, now I'm good. It's out of my head, but it's in yours. You'll be thinking about that song the rest of the day. I even added it to my Spotify playlist. So that gives you a window into how my mind might wander. But bad days are not jokes most of the time, are they? Some of them are disastrous and their negative effects will stay with us for years to come. I've had a few of those. And later on I'll let you in on one of the worst ones I ever had. But we've been studying the Gospel of Mark and particularly focusing, as Pastor Steve said, now on the events leading up to the death of, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it happens today that in Mark chapter 14, and if you want to turn there, you can, because I'll be going through a section, I'll be bouncing around, so I'll put them up on the screen. But it just so happens that in Mark chapter 14, we hit an exceedingly bad day for Jesus. And so as I start, let me ask God's blessing. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Mark 14. I suppose, of course, his death that will come on Good Friday, the death of Jesus, will be a bad day. But this day, it could be argued, perhaps, that this day is even worse His death, full of physical torment, but this one, as we'll see, a different type of torment. We know a lot of pieces about this terrible day, and none of the details, probably none of the details, will be new to most people who are here this morning. But if you're like me, I never really pondered that all these things that we know happened to Jesus all happened on the same day. I'm telling you, it's like a season of 24 where you keep reading and listening and you say, there's no way this could happen all on one day. There's another twist to this story. And that's the prop I have in front of me. We're not going to take communion today. But I put the table here because we hear about this horrible day of Jesus almost every time we take communion. It's part of the words of institution. Do you know the first sentence we're supposed to say every time? Jesus, on the night in which he was 
betrayed. It's interesting, isn't it? We don't say Jesus on the night in which he threw a party for his disciples. Jesus on the night in which he washed the feet of his disciples to show how much he loved them. No, we say Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed is how we start our communion service together. The words of institution. And betrayed is not a fun word, is it? I mean, the reason, the reason we start with these words for our communion is because what Jesus does for us, what he offers to his disciples and to us in his body and his blood is understood best when you understand it happened on a night in which he was betrayed. This was an exceedingly bad day for Jesus. And I want you to look, I'm going to put these verses up because you might not be able to follow me in Mark chapter 14. But Mark 14 is 72 verses long and it covers just a bit over one day. And by my count, Jesus is betrayed six times. One chapter, pretty much one day. Mark 14, 1. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus and secretly kill him. Mark 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So Judas then watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. That's the one we think of when we think of betrayal. But Mark 14, 32 and following adds another. Jesus said to his disciples in the garden now, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. But then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And I could, you could read it. This happened three times. Mark fourteen forty four. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going away at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Mark 14, 50. Then everyone, all the disciples, deserted Jesus and fled. And a young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Mark fourteen sixty six. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you are talking about. And again, this happened three times. All of that happened pretty much in a single day. I just have not put that together before. 
and pondered how significant this is. Jesus had a horrible day. Maybe worse than the day he had full of physical torment. Because because betrayal requires that it comes from people you love, right? It requires it to be from people who are your friends or people who you trust or people who you care about. Only those who are close to you can really betray you. Which, of course, is exactly why it's among the most painful things that can happen to anyone. Betrayed. It's not a pleasant word at all. In the original language, it means to give over. It means to take something that one time you were holding and give it away to someone else. So in this case, Judas betrays Jesus by giving him over. He'd been traveling with him. He'd been watching Jesus heal the sick. He'd been watching him feed the hungry. But for a little bit of money, the price of a slave, we find out, Judas gives over Jesus to be arrested, tried, and ultimately executed. Judas gave him, the wording suggests, a kiss of extreme close friendship at the very moment he was giving him away. You ever had someone give you a false gesture of kindness? Makes my stomach turn just to think about it. That's Judas giving away Jesus. But giving away, giving him over, was not the only way Jesus is betrayed on that night. We've got to ponder the rest of it. Jesus leads his disciples into the garden and he tells them, all of you are going to desert me. Deserting is not a pleasant thought either. The original word here suggests the idea of scandalous behavior. Scandalize is the word. Tonight all of you will become scandalous, Jesus says. Perhaps this is best seen by the guy. Some, of them, some scholars think this is Mark himself, the author of this book. The guy who's so quick to run away that the guards grab his garment and he runs nude through the city to get away. It's a great detail. The Bible puts this stuff in there to keep us on our toes. But they all become deserters. And Jesus wasn't just given over. He wasn't just deserted. But then the story of Peter. Peter says earlier, Lord, I'll never desert you. I'll never be scandalous like that. Jesus says, for the rooster crows, you'll do it three times. Deny. Peter denied Jesus. To deny he even knew him or or was associated with him. Like as if he'd never existed. Peter not only deserted Jesus, but he went further and denied him as well. Even that wasn't all of it. Jesus was given over. He was deserted. He was denied. And he took his closest followers into the garden and says, during this time of torment for me in my human self, will you sit up and pray with me and keep watch? And they fall asleep. No one was with Jesus when he needed them most. He was abandoned as well. Deserted, given over, betrayed, denied, abandoned, all words, all awful, terrible day. Horrible story, isn't it? And it leaves me feeling despair too. 
if I'm not careful, because these disciples are like who we look to for spiritual guidance, right? These are the guys who turned history around with their faith. If they can betray Jesus and screw things up so much, then is there any hope at all for me? I think it's really important to sit in this uncomfortable part of the story for just a minute. Because it'll help us see how amazing Jesus' actions are. So let me jump back into the story a little bit more. The disciples are gathering before all this stuff happens. They're gathering. And it wasn't a table like this. They're celebrating. They're celebrating the Passover once a year. The people got together to celebrate God's deliverance of them from from Egypt. And it was a time of great celebration and joy. The Bible says, And when it was evening, he, Jesus, came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table, enjoying themselves and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me right now. They began to be sorrowful and have... And to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Everyone having a good time, enjoying this meal together, and seemingly out of nowhere, it seems in the text anyway, that Jesus says, hey, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. And it'd be better if that guy had never been born. End of party. Jesus didn't care that he just ruined the party. He was confronting sin. If ever there was a time to let it go, I would have said, talk to him after the party. Close the door and have it out. But Jesus confronts it right in the middle. And let me highlight two verses. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Later, he says to them, It's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And here I thought, if the whole point of Jesus saying this was to call out Judas, then why didn't he say, one of you will betray me and it's you, Judas? But he didn't. I think he's purposely ambiguous here. I wonder if Jesus is really wanting all of the disciples and really all of us to think deeply about our sinfulness. You see, we can't really, we, we've got to push against thinking that sin is somebody else's thing. Oh yeah, we sin a little bit. We do the little things, but somebody else is the sinner. We exclude ourselves pretty much from among those who sin. From among those who betray Jesus and turn away from God. But we can't ever get to a place where we start to think, I could never do that. That's what Jesus is confronting here. He's confronting them by saying, it's one of you. And by the way, from what we just read, it's all of them, isn't it? They're all guilty. Not just Judas. 
And Jesus, I think, wants him to think, is it me, Lord? Am I the one? That's what we need to consider, too, our own sinfulness. How deep this sinfulness runs, how desperate we are for a Savior. How much we cannot conquer our own tendency to do what is opposed to God's will. Jesus wanted to be sure that we all understand the terrible sickness of sin that we all have as humans and how often we underestimate our own sinfulness. And I might add, overestimate somebody else's. Essentially, one lesson here on this day of betrayal is that those who are closest to Jesus, those who call themselves His followers, those who've been learning and following Him, those are the ones capable of appalling betrayal. Let us be on guard. Because our sinfulness can lead us into the same place. But I don't want you to leave here feeling down, discouraged, weighed down by this story of betrayal. I actually want you to leave feeling incredible hope. Because that's what Jesus' actions offer. Oh, the disciples probably should have felt weighed down. But Jesus, well, with all of this background, with all of what we've talked about, and with knowing how I respond to one betrayal, one a year maybe, with fury and upsetness, Jesus dealing with six in one day, with all of that, we come back to our table. And I say, Jesus must have been God to be able to do, remember the first sentence, on the night in which he was betrayed, Six times by all of his followers. On that night is the night Jesus says to them, this is my body, broken for you. And this is my blood, this new covenant I'm going to make with you. The first covenant was to Abraham. And it was sealed with the blood of a bull. And during the days of Moses, there was a covenant that was sealed with sprinkled blood on an altar of dead animals. But this time, Jesus says, I'm going to make a blood pact with all who believe. And I'm going to do it with my own blood. And how amazing is it that he does it on the night he was betrayed. The very night that if I was betrayed, I'd be firing off a nasty email or figuring out how to get back at somebody. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, the night he was given away, denied, abandoned, deserted, he gives his body to those people and to you and to me. I don't know how to adequately explain the love that Jesus has for us. He makes an oath with his own blood that he will never give us over to sin and death. That for those who believe, he will never desert us. 
Never deny us. Never abandon us. That's the gift he offers. And I don't know if my thoughts this morning have helped you to understand a little more of how great the Father's love is for you. To think that Jesus on the night he was betrayed six times would offer to you and to me the gift of his body and his blood. It really is amazing. In one sentence, Jesus refused to let sin win that day. It's not going to happen. For those who believe, I will stand faithfully and make a blood pact with them. At the beginning of the sermon, I said I wanted to let you in on one of the worst days I ever had. We marked 20 years from it this past Wednesday. March 13, 1999, my youngest brother and I entered a bedroom on the second floor of our family home in Brookfield, Illinois, to find the cold, deceased body of our 20-year-old brother, David Russell Matusek. We had watched TV and eaten Subway together just 12 hours earlier without any indication that this day would be his last on earth. It wasn't a betrayal, but it was a terrible, horrible day in my life. And I only bring it up here, besides the fact that it's 20 years, to say that the only thing that got my family through, the only thing that got me through, the only thing that mattered to him, David, was that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, offered his body and blood to save all those who would believe. On the last night he was alive, he listened to a song. We know it because it was the last song in his CD player at the time. And so, I'd like to share that song with you today. Because the words, they capture what we've been talking about. What Jesus is offering to even those who betray him. To you and to me. And so, in honor of my brother, but more so in honor of my Savior and of his mercy that refuses to let sin win, I'd like to end with the song that was the last my brother heard. Mercy said 
Thank you for joining us. I hope your heart has been uplifted as we've worshiped together. If you would like to pray with somebody, as we end our service today, we'll have people up in front praying. Perhaps something in this service has touched your heart. Perhaps you have been betrayed and need prayer. Perhaps you need to ask somebody what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, this, this God who reaches out to you even when you are in the worst of your sin. We'll have people up here to pray with you afterwards. Benediction, I'm going to read what popped up in my Bible app today, and I thought, wow, 
given what we just heard about how much Jesus did for us, here comes the kind of result of that. It's out of Romans 8. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, nor powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great day.